Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody, my name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and critic. Today I'm going to be talking to Paul Duncan. He is an author who's written many, many books, most notably his books for Tashin, the wonderful archive series, including two big books on the original trilogy of Star Wars and the prequel trilogy. He's also been involved with the Ingmar Bergman archives and the James Bond 007 archives, a new edition of which is due out just as soon as the new James Bond comes out, No Time to Die. We talk about all of that and more. Please remember to follow me on Twitter at DrJohnTDRJONTY. Like, subscribe, and generally spread the word. We are depending upon you. I am depending upon you to publicize the podcast as far and wide as possible. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. was a, a kid uh, we didn't have things like VHS or DVD or online or anything like that so I used to watch movies the movies I was allowed to watch and when at night I used to I, I used to memorize the films that I'd watched that I'd liked and I, I used to as I was going to sleep I used to name all the films that I I'd watch you know so I remember even a film that I hadn't seen in probably 40 years or so, there was a there was a war movie that I really loved at the time. And so I, I always included that 
that the name of that movie. Uh, I think it was a, probably a Robert Aldrich movie, uh, not Dirty Dozen, but before that. Attack, maybe? No, no. It's the thing is that often there, there was no reference. There was no book, or there wasn't a place I could go to. There wasn't like I couldn't go to the library and look up the names of these. Uh, films or anything like that you know and I'm talking about I'm watching UFO and Thunderbirds and The Champions, The Persuaders and these sort of shows sort of 10, 12 year old and uh, and that's really that was really the thing right at the beginning I didn't know right or understand but I just knew that I loved these movies I loved The Incredible Shrinking Man which is still one of my favourite movies to this day Them Forbidden planet you know a lot of science fiction i watched king kong from behind the sofa i was so frightened i remembered one day it was a saturday night i used to traditionally we used to have a bath on saturday night i would have a bath and as i was being dried i'd watch star trek but also in that period they started to show science fiction movies around that time sort of early evening and I remember one time watching the beginning of the day of the Triffids and being so scared I couldn't watch the rest of the movie that's just the intro that's it was just the lighthouse and storms and stuff like that I just I just decided it was too much for me so my childhood if you like is always formed by these things that um uh, that really interested me that I really loved that really grabbed me you know I had a very visceral connection to to these movies those early science fiction films that you're talking about as well them and forbidden planet and they're they're so they really I really enjoy them they really stand up today I mean I know they have the the beast from what's it called the beast from 20,000 these films they still stand up they have a very they're very simplistic, they're very simple, but they're very direct, so that the, the people who are writing and directing, Incredible Shrink and Man is, is based on Richard Matheson, who's a fantastic writer. So they have, there's no messing about, there's, there's no cod psychology, it's just like, bang, you're in, you're interested, and it, it really grabs you. And there was a certain point where I wanted to find out more about these movies and um, where could you go I couldn't find any books I would go to the to the library and there'd be the occasional book or picture books more more often than not I'm talking early 70s I'm talking pre pre Star Wars here right and then when Star Wars came out I remember I was on holiday in near Pershaw it was a camping holiday where there was there was no sun just rain um, and, you know, the typical, you know, holiday. My, my brother and I, we were virtually alone on this campsite uh, w- right. with our parents. My memory is we were the only kids mm. and they had, we basically played ping pong in a hall, you know, for like two weeks. But occasionally we, we were allowed out and uh, we went out to Pershaw one day and in a shop I saw a copy of Starlog and in Starlog they had Star Wars on the front cover it was the period when uh, in britain where it was like the the phony war where you knew star wars existed right but star wars had not yet arrived in the country right because it had come out in may 77 but it didn't arrive in london 
until the end of the year, until December. And it never got to my part of the world in the Midlands until January 78. Mm. And it was it was that exact moment where I found out that I saw Star Wars on the cover and used my pocket money to buy, buy a Starlog, which had been obviously imported into the UK. Very, very rare to see them in the wild and <laughs> you know and i grabbed a copy and basically read it and reread it and f- this was a period where i was so in love with not just films for comics and TV series that I started making my own magazine my dad had brought home paper and i ruled out pages on this with lines to write on it was completely blank paper mm. and i used to write and draw my own uh, magazine, taking bits and pieces from things that I'd seen and just writing and drawing them on this paper in a limited edition of one, which mm. uh, which only I got to see. So this is how my, this interest was there, this desire to know what was going on, what was, how it was made, who are these people, what did it all mean? These are all questions of a, of a teenager who didn't know anything about the world and needed to go out and and discover it and didn't know how, didn't know what tools you needed or, or how you did it. How old were you when you finally got to see the film? Well, I, I was there on the very first day in the Neaton when Star Wars was uh, was released, which was a Sunday. And I, I, I was a sort of kid. Is, I mean, the Neaton was, wasn't far away, you know, in real terms, but it was far away for a, for a kid. Right. So I was, uh, it was 77, so I was 13. So early 78, so I was still 13. And yeah, so I arranged, uh, I had seen the footage that had been shown on the BBC News of Star Wars being this enormous success. You know, the blockbuster, the, the term blockbuster was now being used. I, I just envisaged on that Sunday in January, cold, freezing, so bitterly cold that the rain was, you know, about to turn to sleep, was that sort of cold. I envisaged hundreds of thousands of people lining up at this small provincial cinema on a Sunday afternoon for the first showing of Star Wars. So I arrived hours early. Right. And and of course, there was nobody there. <laughs> My dad had dropped me off, literally dropped me off. Yeah. And I was standing there for hours. <laughs> sort of waiting for this film and then even when the doors opened you know it was like it was me and somebody else right who had arrived just before the doors opened and uh, i sort of warmed up in the cinema and then bang you know you know the star wars logo comes on john williams music starts and i was away you know but it was you know and it was well worth the wait i should say but yeah that's how naive I was that you know looking back now I you know I, I thought it was lovely and that that was the first time I ever went to a movie on my own all oh, yeah. right so it, it wasn't it wasn't the movie you know there's always the movies that the parents pick for you or they right. bring you to or etc so that was the very first movie that I ever chose for myself so really that was that was really the beginning of really loving wanting to find out more and then after that there was just an avalanche of information in magazines. So like Starlog, Starburst, I would, you know, when you, when I went on holiday, I would find fantastic films, which is another American magazine. You know, it was just an explosion of, of information, mainly about the special effects, mm. you know, that were, were being developed. And then you got Starburst in the UK as well, came out. So yeah, and I was away. And then whenever there was a, a film 
Like there was a, a magazine about Star Wars that came out and I got that. There was a Alien was coming out and there was a making of magazine, a little book that came out with Ron Cobb and Mobius designs in them. So this was a period when making of books and, and magazines started to appear before before the movies came out. Unheard of now, but that was what happened then, that they were used as a way to entice people into this, this new world. And people had worked out that people wanted to know how the movies were made, right. you know, and what the development process is. So, so that was really... So I started picking up, I, I saved up all my pocket money, I did paper rounds to get more money. You know, I even sold off my comics at, I even had a library of um, of comics <laughs> oh, no. that I that I sold off, all rented uh, at school. <laughs> you were the Netflix of the comic world. Uh, absolutely, I remember there was I made eighty seven. It was half pence to read a comic and a penny to, to buy it, <laughs> and I made eighty seven and a half pence for on one day that was i'm telling you that was a fortune absolute yeah. fortune and it, it was funny because i'm sure if somebody had had a photograph it would have been a brilliant photograph because there were steps up and down to the uh, the school was on a slope mm -hmm. so there were steps up to the the playground you know so the school was below and there were steps up and there were all these kids on the steps reading my comics that i brought in in my my bag reading and renting you know so uh, that, that would have been a great picture i still remember it now anything i could do in order to make money in order to in order to buy these books and things that uh, that i was really really i really really want, wanted to read and to know more yeah. so it was always that thing of wanting to know more and wanting to know what's the truth later on when I was, I'd done my own magazine all about comics and stuff. Later on, when I, on my very first, my, my second job that I had in Northampton, I wanted to find out, I had a little bit of spare cash now, and uh, I went into a local bookshop, and there were two books that I found that I really adored. I don't mean to jump ahead, mm. but the book I, I would recommend, you know, for, for people, Mm. is uh, is money into light that was the book i found one of my first paychecks and it was this that i discovered what the uh, what filmmaking was all about this is money into light by john borman the making of making of emerald forest what astounded me and really caught caught my imagination was the idea of the the financial aspect of it if you like the the fact that everything's cost money and uh, and and how you have to, the logistics, how you have to handle the money, then the location scouting. It went through every different aspect of the filmmaking process. And although, you know, you, you pick up one or two of these pieces, you know, when you read other books, this really had, I mean, his storytelling is, is tremendous in his movies, you know, and I loved, you know, Excalibur and uh, Point Blank and et cetera. But Point Blank was one of the movies that, you know, I had memorized in my in my head as a kid. I, I, the whole process just came alive for me. You know, I felt I was there with John Borman, living his day to day experiences of making that movie, and I thought that was that was great. The thing is that at the at the very same time, I had bought a book on the Wild Bunch, and the Wild Bunch was a movie that I'd seen 
on television and a tiny black and white television in my room very very late at night we've been on television tiny tiny black and white television uh, with the sound down so that i didn't uh, wake my parents and, <laughs> and, and my brother who was in the same room but i remembered every single moment of that movie to such an extent that when it was repeated i, I said well there, there are things missing from this movie which i turned out you know, later to be true that they they'd shown an unedited version on on television. So I bought this book all about Ed Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah's Wild Bunch, and and it went into enormous detail about the plot and and everything, which I had no other reference for, and it confirmed that I had remembered it correctly, which was great. But also, it was done in a, a with a very academic language and analysis and it got very Freudian and I think this is pre-Lacan you know um it just completely turned me off you know just those two books if you like this is only something that I can say now looking back but I realized my my path was the the John Borman path you know in terms of film books it wasn't the other path of analysis and the structuring etc my, my path was the was the practical making of the intent of, you know, the director. Those were the sort of books I was interested in. And so it sort of became very clear that as, as my life and as my interest in films developed, that really those were the sort of books that held my, my interest. Where, if you like, the making of the, the movie is as dramatic as the film itself you know so that that book set me on a path those two books divided divided my way of seeing things of of what i was interested in that's really interesting it's really interesting that you have like a book that inspires you and another book which sort of says not this you know don't go in this direction yeah i mean we all do it we all we all have to try things we all have to experiment and explore and it, it just yes and that book just those two books set me on the path you know the light side and the dark side yeah. <laughs> i went to see star wars at the cinema i was i was a little bit younger than you uh but we did queue we had a massive queue outside i mean maybe it's because it was an evening viewing and i remember we got into the cinema me and my dad and the the we'd missed the crawl we'd missed the opening shot and we got in when all the the rebels are sort of waiting for darth vader to burst in basically and and sort of that's when we'd taken our seats that's when i could sort of concentrate on what was happening in the screen so i'd sort of missed that iconic opening and mm -hmm. the weird thing is i didn't get to see the full film again until like 1982 which was i was twice as old as i was when i saw it you know the first time <laughs> so it's this yeah. huge stretch of time between viewings as well in mm. which those magazines and those novelizations and all those things you know live basically yeah i think that the when you're a kid you know each of those movies has a very distinctive impression on on you and you could almost you can make a sort of list of movies that that made an impression on you from from when you're a kid but there's a certain point where you see just so many movies how can you distinguish one one from the other i'm always amazed by people who can pick out movies and particular scenes and the like that they've you know that are part of of, of their life that aren't from that early period, if you like. Mm. Because um, for me now, I'm I'm watching uh, a movie a day, times 45, 50 years, 
you know, from when I started watching movies. That's a lot of movies, you know. So a, a movie to to impress you now, to interest you now, really has to be pretty darn good in order to to live up to the memories of the past. Though. Yeah, I, I I have detailed memories of films which which are probably not that great, but I just watched in a time when they made up a much larger fraction of my total film watching. Yeah, that's another thing as well, that watching films at a different age, there are certain ages where, you know, it's the same with books, etc. There's a certain time of your life when it's the right time to watch a movie, uh, to watch a particular movie, whereas sometimes you're too young, sometimes you're too old for it. I don't think that's something that really that people think about or talk about much, but but I think it is, it is important that a specific movie talks to you or can be revisited and seen in a different way over and over again. I mean, a a movie that I can go back to time and again is something like Terence Malick's Tree of Life, which I adore, which I think is, is great. I remember being completely dumbfounded by it the first time I saw it. And then I know the people who were with me watching it absolutely hated it, mm. you know, and they thought it was a waste of time. But, you know, I, I was, I felt there was something there, something for me. And I, I've seen it a couple of times later, you know, subsequently. And each time it's it's grown. It's something that I think is no obvious message, but has something about it, which which is, which connects to me very, very deeply. So, so I think that, if I had seen that as a as a teenager or as a kid, I wouldn't have had the same connection to it, and perhaps would never have revisited it. Uh, and I think it's important to know that there are movies like that that there it's it's important to see them at a particular time. Have you seen the uh, the longer cut of um, that he made? No, not no. I, I haven't seen uh, yeah. I know Criterion have have done it, haven't they? They've put it. I haven't picked that up yet. I'm I'm waiting. I've got as I talk behind me, there is a, a wall with over two thousand movies on them. <laughs> and uh, that I have not seen. And that's not um and then in the loft is X thousand movies that I have seen. So so life is a bit like that. So last night I saw Day of the Outlaw by Andre de Toth. Mm. Um and uh, uh the night before, I saw Fixed, Hel- uh, Fixed Bayonets by Sam Fuller and, uh, and Curlin by Dennis Cote. And then I saw or re-saw uh, Kiyoshi's uh, Kurosawa's uh, Pulse the night before. So oh, that's such a good uh, movie. That's so good. Yeah. And still and still stands up. I was afraid because I remember when I saw it, there's certain movies that that's a great movie for late at night when... If you like your body, your body and, my, and your mind have separated. Your mm. body is at rest, and your mind is is a bit dull. And watching that that movie late, very late at night, is is the ideal time for it, where it just it just eases over you and just suffuses your mind, so uh, and takes it over like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think. So, uh, which is another one that I saw recently. But no, seeing it again, it it really held up really well mm. I, I saw it 15 years ago but seeing it again I, I was very surprised at how well it it held up and that that's the thing that you some some movies that you that you love or remember as a as a kid or when you were in development or in the past sometimes it's uh, there is a bit of a fear 
of, of re-watching them again to see whether they really did hold up and have the same amount of power as they did earlier. When did you, when do you start actually writing then? So when you, when you, you, you know, you, you, you bought these books and you'd, uh, you know, you'd, you'd had this love of comics and films from your childhood to your teenage years. When did you sort of start thinking of it as in terms of a career or publishing stuff? When I was 15, I was still at school and a friend of mine was a fan of Doctor Who and he brought in some fan magazines and I had already been making my little one one limited edition of one of my of my own sort of magazine. And a friend of mine says, well, why don't we do our own magazine? So, so we started, uh, his aunt was the school secretary. So, uh, so she had a typewriter. And so basically I wrote we decided to make our own magazine. I wrote the whole thing except one article on Doctor Who, which my friend wrote. I did all the drawings and everything because I, lo- I love drawing and comics. And and I just started writing. I said, instead of copying other articles, I started to, to write my own. So I was 15. And it was great because the school la- allowed us to use their Gazette Gestetna machine, and I managed to get out of playing cricket, right? In order to to use their school the school printer. So I hated cricket. So that was so that was like a win win situation, right. right? Right there. And that machine's like a, a precursor of a photocopy. It's like a barrel that you have to sort of. If you look on the old typewriters, they have stencil, and what that is 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 that you when you press down, the the ribbon doesn't come up to meet it, so there's no r- ribbon. And you have a, a wax stencil, and so when the the type comes down, it cuts a hole in the wax. And then this long wax thing, which is a four size or a little bit bigger, you wrap that round an oil drum. You make sure it's nice and flat, otherwise you get wrinkles and stuff. And obviously the drum has to be filled with with ink. And then you you rotate it by hand, this drum. You rotate it one way, and the drum goes around the other. And you basically you you, you feed paper into it. And then the ink comes through the pad, through the holes that you've made, which is the, the type, onto the paper. It's very, very simple. Yeah, and then you have to feed in, wait for the paper to, to dry, the ink to dry, and then flip it over and put it in and make sure they're the right way up. Do it. So for each page, you have to do that. That was the first one I did in 1980. It was April 1980. And basically, that magazine, even though at the beginning, it was all about film, television, and comics. So anything to do with fantasy effectively fantasy science fiction that developed over the years into just a comics magazine where i would interview comic writers and creators and that lasted for 10 years till 1990 and was originally called ark and sword and then became known it was short everybody called it ark so i shortened it to ark you know i interviewed all the great comic artists and writers in the UK, people like Alan Moore and Brian Bolland and et cetera. And in America, I managed to get to America and I interviewed people like Jack Kirby and Will Eisner and Mobius. Yeah, it, it was it was an amazing 10-year run. And, you know, and the magazine was distributed, ended up being perfect bound, litho printed and distributed around the world. So, yeah, so that 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 was great. You know, and then at the very end, because I was a student all the way through this, at the very end, basically, basically all my money went into this. I had no life <laughs> at all. And at the end, I had all this money that had always gone into printing, etc. Right. And uh, I had enough for a deposit on a house at the end of it. <laughs> wow. When all the money came back. So it had, the, had a good ending. 
Excellent, excellent. And then, uh, and then, did you parlay that into uh, into sort of book deals and and journalism? Nothing. Nothing. No. Oh, okay. I'd always had <laughs> I, I, n- nothing. So I I had always had from from then I had a, a career as a technical author, and right. always in my spare time I would do I, I would do these projects I was interested in. So I divided completely divided my time time at work and then. The time after work would always be things I'd be interested in. So I was interested in crime and mystery fiction, especially noir writers like Jim Thompson, Colonel Woolrich, James Elroy, James Salis, and um, this, this sort of thing. Uh, I started a magazine, co-founded a magazine called Crime Time in '95, and I was I edited the first few issues of that. And magazines still going now online by other hands. But, but through that, I got to interview more writers. And I got my first book out of that, which was a collection of uh, interviews from that. But I never parlayed that into anything further. And then in 99, I started, because I'm just so interested in, in movies, I started to do these little books called, I came up with the idea of Pocket Essentials, mm. which are these small 96-page books that are like Cliff Notes or York Notes on on movies, and um, of course it was it was came from that idea of when I was a kid not being able to find out information quick and easy about who somebody was and what they'd done and what's interesting about them and how the films were made. So if you like, these notes were were essentially that, giving not only a quick pricey of the the plot, but little bit about the background about how they were made you know anecdotes a bit about the the meaning of it if you mm. like the subtext of it mm. and also a little bit about the the visual language that the filmmaker was using so uh, in this way i got to I, I did books on hitchcock and kubrick and scorsese and woody allen and mm. uh, orson wells and things like this in this way it was great because i would watch the movies in chronological in chronological order and do like four a day mm. and be making all these notes and then that way i could i could watch the whole the whole run the whole out output of a, of a filmmaker and what was really that was inspired by channel four who used to do these seasons of akira kurosawa and fritz lang and film noir and and others and they would have like months where they would just show the these movies these seasons of movies and I thought, oh, let's do something like that, but in the... And, and that was purely as a way to try and make money, if you like, right. for the first time. Because I, ironically, I'd, I was trying to do things myself. I was trying to research uh, an author I, I loved and adored, um, for whom there had been no biography, uh, Gerald Kirsch. And, uh, and so I'd actually taken time off work. I had actually decided... No, I will stop working to concentrate on just doing this biography. But as it happened, it took longer than I thought, and I needed some money. So I came up with this idea of doing these these books. And that really then triggered this whole move to Tashin, because I had done these books, and I'd seen that Tashin uh, had the very best distribution to what was, uh, as far as I could see. And I thought, oh, these are... These pocket essentials are very nice and cheap. Let's try and sell these. Let's see if Tashin will take these to to distribute them. Tashin said no. <laughs> um, we, we we don't distribute other people's books. Thank you very much. Right. This so this is ninety nine. But then about a year later, I'm on contract because I'm freelance technical author. I managed to get some work. I was on contract in Lytham St Anne's, working for for the government. At my desk, I get a phone call 
basically from Taschen asking if it would be possible to meet up in um, in Germany in Cologne, you know, and they pay my flight over there and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, I'm on contract, so I can't go during the week. It'll have to be a weekend. So, um, so yeah, so that's what happened over the weekend. I went over to Cologne, met Benedict Taschen, spent about four hours talking about movies and books. Yeah, and then he says, oh, let's work together. So that's when I started doing, if you like, movie books. It was a completely in a way accidental that I'm actually doing it as a career because I never intended to do to do it at all. The only thing I'm interested in is something that I'm enthusiastic about. That's the only reason I, I did anything I did. Basically from 1980 to, to 2000, you know, 20 years, is basically me just writing and about stuff that I love and enjoy and want to share with, with others. And in fact, the past 20 years, when I've been doing books for, for Tashin and others, it's been exactly the same. My attitude is always, oh, I found this thing. It's really cool. I want to tell somebody about this, you know, and the fact that I, I don't know anybody. And the only way I can do it is to tell it through books. A well-presented enthusiasm goes a, goes a long way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's like the... So obviously I've done a lot of, of books since then. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tashin really gave me an entree into a whole different world, a whole different level. So previously, I would not have had access to, to archives or special materials, etc. But right. what I learned at, at, at Tashin is that I could get access to archives. And so for the first time, I'm getting closer to the filmmakers, if you like. I'd met, obviously, creators before, like authors and comic creators, and interviewed them. Mm. But I'd never really interviewed or got close to, to filmmakers. So really, that was that was a new learning curve. But it's always the same. In fact, you know, you tend to find that the filmmakers themselves are exactly the same that they're really enthused about a particular subject and they want to express that through. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Their, their enthusiasm through their, their movies. And they, they're, they're students of films and movies as well. So it's always interesting to meet like-minded people. Who's been your sort of most... Uh impressive sort of pinch me i can't believe i'm actually sitting in the same room with with so and so sort of moment well there's a lot of those picking out one would be unfair mm. i think but i will <laughs> really i mean i've been very very lucky in that i've i've managed to to meet and talk to you know some very interesting and very influential people in in the film world i, I think the first one that i i had direct contact with 
for any period of time was uh, Michael Mann. Uh, I'd always loved his movies. Uh, I remember seeing Thief and being amazed by it and seeing, uh, and also with my dad, I managed to get to see, uh, I saw Last of the Mohicans and Heat. And we, we adored those movies, you know, and watched them together. You know, going to, going to the, that was a, a lovely time, actually, going to the cinema. I, I had a connection with the local cinema. They would l- let me go to the early screenings, you know, for, for press, even though I wasn't really press. And uh, so I'd bring my dad along and uh, we'd go to there. And then afterwards he would treat me to a, to a pizza and and we'd sit down talking about the movies. He wasn't really a, a cinema buff, you know, mm. whatever. But he did like, love the movies, you know. And so Last of the Mohicans was like a cowboy movie. Mm. For him, you know, it was a Western, but he, he loved it. And when we went to see um, Heat, I remember sitting down afterwards, he said, oh yeah, that's just like the old Cagney, Pat O'Brien movies. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And of course, he'd nailed it, absolutely oh, nailed yeah. it. And so when I, when eventually I got to meet Michael Mann, I was doing a book on on Michael Mann, and he very graciously allowed me to, to look through all his archives of, of materials that he had. In his office, while he was on pre-production for Collateral, so I had one of the rooms. So I, I got to look through all this amazing material, and Michael Mann has quite a a fierce reputation, shall we say. You know, he doesn't brook falls gladly. And I I remember on, on the first day I was looking through all this this material. I said, this is strange. This is a strange image. I, I'd come across a, an image in, in the archives and it was of a group of men. It had nothing to do with anything else, you know, no film or, or, or anything that I could see. What, what we'd arranged is that at the end of each day that I was there, if I wanted to talk to Michael, because uh, obviously he was busy on the movie, I, I could have five minutes to talk. And uh, so at the end of the, each day, I, I would come and I, I would show him an image or ask him about a particular image. And he said, why did you pick this out, Paul? You know, he said, there's something wrong. It's an anomaly, you know, that you can't, It's it's it, it doesn't quite fit with everything else. So I wondered why, why you had this image. And um, and then it turned out to be an image that he used as a as a reference. So on um, uh, Last of the Mohicans, he used the Magritte uh, Empire of Light. And, you know, so, so I asked him, well, what's this Magritte doing in your... <laughs> In your archives here, and he says, "Oh, that that was my image to come back to on the movie." So whenever he and Dante Spinotti, the cinematographer, had any any questions about how to approach a particular scene, how to light it, film it, shoot it, this was an image that they went back to, right? In in order to in order to help them discover how to solve the problem. In other words, I had by accident I had found, if you like, a way in to Michael. So that was one aspect that I, I thought was fascinating. And also because I'd found that, that gave me he trusted me more that I was on the right track to do the, to do this book. And in fact, we did have issues on that on that book where the writer FX Feeney, the late FX Feeney, the great, great FX Feeney. Um, who's like one of those very, very undervalued writers, I think, uh, who's never written. When, when you've been around a while, you find out that there are some very, very talented people who don't necessarily parlay that talent into a career that earns them money. And you do find this a lot. I mean, you find it in a lot of things, but FX was great. Anyway, he, so he supplied a, a manuscript and, you know, Michael wanted to read it to make sure it was okay. 
And Michael said, no, don't agree with this. This isn't right. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. You know, on particular points, you know, through through the thing. And then we thought, oh, no, how are we going to deal with this? And and then we came up with this solution, which was the negotiation with, with Michael, which was this. Okay, Michael, you and FX sit down and you talk out the things that you disagree with, and we include it in the manuscript so that FX can have his say, but Michael can have his say as well, you know, if you like, a rebuttal within the manuscript. And that became a, a very interesting way of, of doing it, you know, because Michael got his say, but you could also, as a reader, you could understand the point of view. And it's it's very similar, to, in fact, to me saying to Michael, he, well, that's a James Cagney, Pat O'Brien movie, isn't it? And he was like, no, this is all based on detailed research on real people. You know, and he even showed me the uh, photos of these guys from Chicago, you know, this crime gang, you know, and, you know, that, that he'd spent all these years researching and writing because he's obviously a writer as well. Correct? But I think th- there is a truth in both of them in that it is he has molded the movie into a particular shape that's recognisable because Pat O'Brien and James Cagney had based their characters on people that they knew, real gangsters, you know, from the period. So it all comes from, from research, and I think both approaches are valid, but those, those researches, etc., have to be manipulated and formed into a story in some way that's understandable and digestible for the audience. But your experience of going into the archives and, and, and delving in and bringing stuff out, I mean, that that's sort of replicated in the books themselves. I mean, they're now called the Star Wars Archive, the Stanley Kubrick Archive. Um, I mean, when did that that idea come up? Was that already in place at Tashin, or was that something that you were you were involved in creating? Well, the very first archives was the Stanley Kubrick archives, mm. which was allocated to Alison Castle, be- I think, just before I arrived at Tashin. So, so I so I missed out on that. But as a as a result of the success of that that book, Tashin asked me to do a book on Ingmar Bergman on the Ingmar Bergman archives. Right. So, really, the Kubrick book is basically separated by movie. And then you have a writer writing about each individual movie. What I wanted from the Bergman book is that I wanted... Bergman was a great writer of scripts, a great director, Mm. but also he wrote the stories for radio, television, film and theatre, as well as being a published novelist. So somewhat accomplished, I would say, <laughs> as a writer. Did he, did he ever sleep, this man? Well, uh, not, not to my knowledge. Absolutely, incredibly prolific. And I had no idea how prolific he was until I went to, to the archives. Because I, I was unaware of he did 50 scripts for, for radio. <laughs> you know, I mean, plays. Yeah. And as well as television stuff. So And, uh, and theatre, theatre adaptations. So, so it was actually... I should say that the the funny way that that came about is that I got Christina, one of the Tashan PRs, was actually friends with somebody who was a, a documentary filmmaker who knew Bergman, who had visited Bergman on his, on his island in Fora. It's not Bergman's island, it's an island that Bergman lived on, I should say. And I've and said, oh, 
Bergman is feeling underappreciated. And I thought, all right, that's that's good. So I mentioned this to, to Benedict Ashen, and he says, oh, yeah, 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 we should do a, a big book on it. We should do an archives book on it. So what I did was I packed, I'd done all these monographs on directors, you know, on Hitchcock, Kubra, Wilder, Fellini, Antonioni, et cetera, et cetera. And I basically put them all in a single box, these, you know, really nice photo books. And I sent them off with a letter to Bergman on the island. And and I got, the story I got back is this. And I, I heard this later from Erland Josephson and, and, and other friends of his, that he basically he ripped open the box and he picked out the book on Antonioni, the book on Kubrick, book on John Ford, et cetera, et cetera. And he says where the fuck is the book on me? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he opens the letter, you know, with asking permission to do uh, not only a, a book on him, but a much bigger book than all the other books that were, <laughs> <laughs> that, I, that were presented in front of him. And we duly got permission to do, to, to do the book. Yeah, he, say, he says about time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I cannot uh, confirm nor deny that this story is true, but this is what I heard, right? So uh, print the legend, as John Ford would say. So this is, uh, so this really had a project started. And that was, uh, I think, that, that was a key project for me because even though I'd done these other books were great, you know, it's like Roman Polanski gave me access to his archive. It was just Antonioni gave me access to his archive. I, I went and met Antonioni. You know, and while he was painting, and he, uh, he at that time because of uh, stroke, etc., he couldn't really speak very well. Even in Italian, he found difficult to to speak. But gave permission, opened the archives. It was fantastic. And uh, I remember I was I didn't speak Italian, couldn't really communicate with him. And he's there painting, and he picks up two pots of paint, right, to decide which color to put into like a particular space on his painting because he did these slots i don't know whether you've seen his paintings but he did these sort of abstract very evocative paintings he, he picks up two two colors then he looks at me and he he raises one part of paint and then the other part of paint as uh, as if you know for me to decide what color <laughs> he should put on the thing and i said you know i, I put my hands up and said don't ask me you're the artist you know <laughs> <laughs> and um you know and he he sort of gave a, a sort of wink and a smile you know and then uh, you know picked one and, and carried on you know so, so that was lovely so i i'd had all these other experiences which was great but the but this was like such a deep dive into bergman i i cannot express to you just how how wonderful it is to go into cold storage and be given free reign to racks upon racks of of old mouldy paper in order to that is now being preserved and cleaned up. I was doing this with Bank Wanselius, who was Bergman's photographer for many years, and just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he would go off. We we split the work so that. I handled all the text elements and he went off and researched all the photography because he knew everybody in Sweden, a top, top reportage photographer, as well as for film, TV, entertainment productions. He took portraits of royal family, all this sort of stuff. Fantastic, fantastic, beautiful guy. So we went off all around over Sweden, unearthing stuff that had never been seen before. 
as well as get having access to all of Bergman's materials. And then there was the Svenska film industry. Uh, they were at the time starting to pull stuff out of the original glass negatives. They were starting to pull out of storage in order to scan them. And basically, that, we, we got them to scan all the Bergman material first, <laughs> which is very helpful. I mean, everybody, the film people, the television, uh, the national television archives uh, and studios, Dramaten, which is National Theatre, everybody opened up everything. It was amazing going to... Stockholm and around Sweden doing this. I remember there was one day where they said at the Svensk Film Ministry, they said, oh, we found a hidden room. And I literally what had happened is this. In the side of a mountain, you know, where they keep store of the stuff, there had been a been these filing cabinets. They'd taken the filing cabinets uh, away in order to research and tidy up, and they found a door. And they opened the door, and beyond the door what were all of Bergman's, for his own production company that he'd started, all his files. And it was like, oh, wow. So Bengt and I got in a car, raced up to this, uh, these archives in order to start flipping through. And of course, Bengt is, is taking photographs of these flip books with Polaroids and script things and, you know, continuity, etc., which we obviously included in, in the book. And even when we had the layout finished and approved and Bengt, was, Bengt did the final scans for, for, for the photography on that, even at that point, he said, you'll never believe this, Paul. So I said, what? Uh, we, we took out uh, for the film Persona, which famously is uh, in black and white, and also Bergman decided that all the, since it's about cinematography and the idea of, of the image, the photographic image, then all the stills with it from it would only be frame enlargements from the movie to such an extent that they included the sprocket holes on the side of the stills. And Banks says, Paul, and it was a black and white movie. Paul, you never believe this. I'm scanning away and I found down the back of a filing cabinet, when we took out all the, uh, you know, the old metal filing cabinets, you've got the drawers. Well, somehow, when you take the drawers out, down the bottom, there had been fallen um, some, uh, some original large format color photography on Persona, <laughs> right? And I go, well, I, I exclaim somewhat and um, on this, and Banks says, I'm scanning it now. I'm scanning it now. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the book, the book was locked, right? And basically, we, we got the, we were looking through these images and they were of Bergman and Liv Ullman basically um, together on Fora um, uh, while they were filming Persona. And, and basically, it's the start of their relationship, you know, uh, during the, the filming. So, I mean, it's important anyway. And so we then had to, we, we, we're then cutting full-page images um, that were already in the book and approved in order to put in these images, a few of the images that, that we found. So this is it's, it's sort of the thrill of the hunt that you, that you find all this material. And also, sadly on that, there's an, another aspect in that you are dealing with people's lives. And this came very, very much on that book. It came home to me just how uh, meaningful a person can be. Because even though I never met Bergman and he didn't want to meet anybody, you know, at this time of, of his life, he gave complete permission. And also he talked to people in Stockholm 
all the time, especially Erland Josephson, his closest friend. So when we were in, in Stockholm, we would visit all his, his circle of friends and they would tell us stories about Bergman, about their relationship, about what Bergman was doing now, you know, on his island, all the latest gossip and stuff like this. And, uh, and in that way, they were keeping Bergman updated on the progress of the book about what the latest thing is, etc., which was, which was lovely. And I remember Erland saying to me, he says, uh, Bergman has, is in his bungalow, in his house on Fora, and he's got all his old scripts and photos, you know, all his copies, etc. And he, he's basically, he's laid them out, as Erland is explaining to me, he had laid out all of these out all over the floor of his house and then had sat on a high chair looking down on them as though he was surveying his life, as though psychologically Bergman was doing what I and Bengt and everybody else were physically doing with this book. And that was such a, that was such a, a powerful and a moving image you know, it really brought home just how you're not just dealing with movies here. You don't, you, you're dealing with people's lives, you know, and their feelings and what their lives mean to them. And so that was 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 beautiful. And sadly, uh, Bergman never got to see the book because he, mm. he he passed before before the book was completed. But he knew everything about the book. You know, that was was to know about all the things that we'd found, etc. And even people turned, uh, there was a reporter reporting on the book who said, oh, my my father used to play with Bergman as a kid. And as a kid, they made a film script, which was basically Bergman and his his friends, who would have been, you know, 15, about the same age I was doing my my magazine when I started. They didn't know how to do a film script, but they made a film script. And they did it by taking, they would do, they would write a, a on one page, they would write what was happening in the, in the movie. And it was a silent movie, you know, because that was what they were watching at the time. And then on the other page, they didn't know how to do a script. So they would take a photograph and put it there. So that was, yeah. so each page was like that. And he says, oh, and I've got, I've still got the script. Bergman gave it to my father. So, so he has it. So we ended up, because Bergman had, had passed and reporter was interviewing Bengt because of this, it then, these other things started to appear. And we, we actually got copies of that to include in the book. So it was it's sort of, I mean, that was a really beautiful book and a beautiful experience. And this is the thing that came across in the making of the book, is that it is about the people involved and their feelings and how they relate and their fun and experience of of making the movies we started talking about cliches at the beginning but it's that cliche of cinema is life you know life is cinema i mean it's this is a very literal expression of that one of the things about cinema is that i think often the films connect to us because they connect to something in our lives sometimes we know about it we know what the connection is oh i'm interested in sports cars so therefore, I see a movie about sports cars because it's talking about the same thing I'm interested in. So th there's yeah. that sort of aspect of it. But then there's another aspect of it, which I think is the reason, for example, I connected to Tree of Life from Malik, because there's a whole other group of movies that actually talk about the experience of living, you know, and what life is about, as you're saying. Those are, if you like, the surprising movies. Those, are, I think, are the ones that will 
live with you the, the rest of your life. They will be like a sounding board for you to go back and to try and understand what your life is, is about. In fact, one of the, the fears that I had when embarking on doing the Star Wars archives is that I wouldn't be able to find a story or something that the that the book would be about. The situation was Tashin had a contract with Disney to do a certain number of books, including two books with Lucasfilm. I was asked to go uh, to meet with Lucasfilm and to to try and come up with a, a you know a book. And I really didn't know what I was going to do because in these situations we've now reached the point in publishing where there are in the late seventies, early eighties. There were only a handful of making of books, of books about cinema, on books about filmmakers who that you could say were authoritative. So obviously you've got Hitchcock Truffaut, you've got Picture, you know, the first. It's often talked about being the first making of book. We could also look at Cocteau's filming of Beauty and the Beast, his Diary of the Poet, I think it's called. You know, so there are only a few books that you could really see as, as touchstones for making of books. But now, since 1980 to, to now, it's like there are millions of them. You know, it's really, you can't turn around without seeing another book or having the information all on the internet. To now ask a writer or an editor or whatever to come up with a book idea that will be interesting and engaging in some way, it's it's frightening. And, uh, and, and that was really what I had on Star Wars. And I didn't think, even though I'd been a fan of Star Wars, I really thought that everything had been done. And I was sure, oh, everybody else is going to think that as well. Why should they buy a book on start another book on on Star Wars when there are already thousands publications. It's a whole industry. So really, that was my fear. And it was only when George Lucas gave access to his archives and agreed to be interviewed that I knew that I could turn the book into an oral history only when I got to the situation where I was talking to George that I that I knew I had a book. Because with George, it wasn't about the nuts and bolts of of a thing so i couldn't pointless me asking what did you do on december 10th 1976 because he wouldn't have a clue i mean i don't have a clue what i did on december 10th 1976 so why should he but his real interest was in in the philosophy of star wars and then once once i realized that that there was a philosophy behind star wars that george was willing to talk about it and we would talk for hours about it and how it related to the world that we live in that's when I knew that we had a book you know I, I knew then that I could include all the things that you have in a making of I present it in the present tense you know I wanted I wonder that that feeling that I'd had when reading Money Into Light where I felt I was with John Borman while he was filming Emerald Forest I wanted to feel I was with George Lucas while he was filming the Star Wars movies. And so that that was really my focus. And I wanted to draw out of George this idea of philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, and to include that so that we had a not only a very focused story, but a focus that could go somewhere that, that other stories and other books hadn't gone before. And that was it. That was That was the key. So that meant that the book had a meaning outside of being a making of. And that for me was the very gratifying because obviously I'm in my late 50s now, you know, so 
I'm, you know, the things that I think about on a day-to-day basis are different than the things I was thinking about when I was 20. And so the the books that I do, I want to reflect the things that I'm concerned about. So obviously we're concerned about the future, uh, and so is George. And George was great. Very understated sense of humour, very black sense of humour. There was there were parts of the interview that I just couldn't publish, because even though when you say something within a conversation, there is a certain understanding that you have during the conversation. But when you put it into black and white on the page, it doesn't live anymore. It, it deadens the the other impact. What did he say that you couldn't publish? No, 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 no. Really... No, they're just they're just jokes. Right, I see. Yeah, yeah. you see, yeah. and I knew that the jokes would fall flat. You know, so right, and right. Um, so I so that's why in the within the text we did joke, and so I did include those uh, a few of those jokey moments in there. He was great; it was such a, a lovely, lovely guy. And I've been really lucky. I ended up over the two books. Uh, I did a book on episodes four, five, and six, and then a book on episodes one, two, and three. So over the two books. I got to spend five days with him, five complete days, which was great. I mean, we've come, we've come full circle. We've, we, you know, we started with you in Nuneaton waiting to, you know, in the freezing cold with the sleet coming down, waiting to get into Star Wars, and now we've finished with you spending time with George Lucas talking about the philosophy of Star Wars. That's amazing. And your recommended book is John Borman's. Sorry, what's it called? Money, money, money into, into light. light. Money into light. Money into light. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you, you need to get hold of a copy of that, John. Yeah. And the thing is, it's also he his son, Charlie Borman, was was in that. He yeah. cast his son in it. And yeah, there were all sorts of questions about filmmaking and whether a decision, how far are you willing to go as a filmmaker in order to make this movie? Mm. I, I mean, there was to physically go, you know, because it, was, it wasn't an easy, it was physically demanding and dangerous. Yeah. Uh, at points making that movie and this is always interesting about how far will the filmmakers go i mean i just i was surprised i was talking to, to george george basically his first few movies he didn't make any money he was doing them for free companies corporations were making money out of the product he was making but he wasn't and then he hit it with american graffiti and the first thing as soon as he got his first even though he'd been borrowing george had been borrowing money from people in order to to survive with the first bit of money chunk of money that he got he he put up $500,000 which is the equivalent of 2.5 million dollars today into a little company to start a company called Industrial Light and Magic, ILM, in in June 1975. And this is before 20th Century Fox had given the green light on Stoles. So he'd actually invested, it was an enormous gamble, because even though 20th Century Fox had put seed money into to develop Stoles, you know, in order to keep it going, to investigate how to go forward they did they didn't end up with the budget or or pre-production had to stop people were were not being paid and then it wasn't the the money wasn't given the budget wasn't given the money didn't flow again until uh, december 75 so i mean just to give you an idea of how risky this whole thing is but george and other filmmakers really go out there they really put their lives on the line 
And I think that the, and I think that's really commendable. So for me, filmmaking is about these people and what motivates these people to tell these stories. Why do these filmmakers think their stories are so important to tell? That that fascinates me, and that's why I make these books. And that's such a such a, an amazing, wide and eclectic sort of bunch of people as well that we we got a, an opportunity to discuss. Listen, Paul, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really, it's been really fascinating. Yeah. And I didn't even mention James Bond. <laughs> oh, God. Well, yeah, that's your next one, right? No, I did. Uh, I've already done the James Bond archives. And but I've got an updated before the pandemic. I'd written and, and finished the a chapter on the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. So I've been on set, talked to the director and all the all the crew, all the heads of departments about the making of the movie, and and even got to talk to uh, Daniel Craig as well about it. So it's it's really that continues, you know. So I've added an, addi- an additional chapter which will come out. Obviously, it's embargoed. It's it's not like the olden days no. where you. Were have the novelization of Star Wars coming out six months before the movie, <laughs> you know, and, and the comic coming out before the movie comes out. This is, you know, completely embargoed, obviously. And it is, from everything I've, I've seen, it is well worth waiting for the movie. So, oh, brilliant. Yeah, I think it's, there's a possibility this, this could be one of the best. Well, I'll tell you what, let's do, let's do another interview when you're, when you're no longer under embargo. You know, I'm always available. I'm what they call, I'm always in, in my little room in the, in, in the Midlands, <laughs> waiting for somebody to call. <laughs> well, that I will be that somebody. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. No problem. It was a pleasure. Take care, John. So that was my conversation with Paul. His recommended book is John Boardman's Money Into Light, a diary which charts the production of the film The Emerald Forest. Thanks very much to Elliot Atkins for providing the music for the episode. Please remember to follow uh, me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty. Uh, please like and subscribe and do everything you can to spread spread the word as wide and far as possible. We're doing really well with the podcast. I'm really pleased with the way it's going, but the, any anything anybody can do to publicize it is greatly, greatly appreciated. So thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week. Take care. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.